Listener Production. G'day, I'm agricultural scientist Chris Russell and welcome to Rebuilding Australia, Our Animals and Land. One of the greatest tragedies of the recent fires has been the loss of animals due to the heat and speed of the 2020 fires. The post-fire management of both dead and injured animals is clearly critical to both the health of the surviving animals and the future survival of some native animals in the burnt-out areas. A failure to properly dispose of the dead animals is clearly a biosecurity issue. And biosecurity is always critical to Australia's future food production as well as its native ecology. So to guide us through the implications of the 2020 fire from a biosecurity perspective is Dr. Helen Scott Orr. Dr. Scott Orr is a veterinarian and epidemiologist whose career has focused on control of infectious disease and biosecurity. She's a former Commonwealth Director General of Biosecurity and also a former Chief Veterinary Officer of New South Wales. Welcome to Rebuilding Australia, Helen. Thanks, Chris. So we've seen international attention about the 2020 fires, massive in scope and and ferocity. What, in your view, is the extent of the damage and how are we going to assess and estimate that damage from an animal point of view? Well, the the livestock damage is uh, being tallied on a rolling basis by the different states um, and it's in the many thousands, um, but... uh, in a sense, from a livestock perspective, it's not as bad as the wildlife um, toll. That is, uh, we've heard estimates of a billion uh, wild animals that have been killed in these bushfires. And that, of course, is because the, the biggest levels have been in the highly forested areas along the east coast of uh, Australia, from southern Queensland right down through um, through ta- um, Victoria and um, also on Kangaroo Island. So not all these animals are killed, are they? I mean, a lot of them are burnt and damaged and they have nowhere to go. Absolutely, and so it's an incredibly difficult thing when uh, when the fires have gone through. Obviously, uh, you can't get in there until it's safe, and then once you do get in there, and in some areas people have been finding just dead animals. In other areas, the the stock uh, on a on a say a dairy property may have found a a creek uh, that they can uh, huddle around. Uh, they may be injured. Their feet may have been uh, irreparably burnt, and and they may not be able to uh, support themselves and they may have to be put down. Uh, so it's a very um, difficult and heartbreaking process for for farmers and usually in these situations uh, you have um, uh, the the state governments and, and local land services and so on send in veterinarians and rangers and, and other people to help assess these losses and help with the um, humane... Um, uh, destruction of of uh, animals that are not going to recover where it would just be cruel to to leave them there uh, but they find that very heartrending it's heartrending for the owners it's very heartrending for the for the staff of these agencies as well so 
uh, I guess they've got to be, the whole thing's got to be triaged and worked out who's going to do what. What are the priorities for the animal care once they move into a, a, a national park, for example? Well, obviously, if you you can identify that there are animals that are uh, alive, uh, they probably won't have anything to eat or drink in many cases. And so trying to get them, put them in touch with, with appropriate food and water um, and possibly shelter is very important. If, uh, if they're injured, as I say, they may be able to be uh, treated or they may be too far gone and, and have to be put down for their own to stop their own suffering. And then, of course, there are many carcasses people are reporting. I'm sure you've heard the reports of people finding little bit ash or very residual uh, burnt carcasses. But if there are carcasses of large animals, whether it's wildlife or it's um, livestock, they've got to be handled carefully. And the best thing to do, they, they need to be disposed of in a safe manner and as quickly as possible. Um, and bear in mind that's, of course, once the fire damage has gone. So, Helen, with all these carcasses and, and, and also sick animals potentially, you know, what are the biosecurity issues that we've got to face and, and how do we actually resolve those? What are the potential problems? Well, the fire will have, uh, in many cases, scarified the outsides and sterilised the outsides of the animals. Uh, but, of course, inside uh, they're full of uh, bacteria and, um, and so on. So managing that disposal of carcasses is a, uh, a vexed question. Uh, now, there are a number of ways you can dispose of carcasses. Composting is a very good way if um, the resources are available, but you probably need about two feet of straw to put, say, cattle carcasses on and then some compost or or manure or something to cover them with and then another two feet of straw to to do that. And if that is done properly and settled, those comp- those carcasses will break down just like ordinary compost does and produce a very good compost and that's an extremely useful way. But in fire grounds, very often that stuff won't be available and any roughage may be required to feed to surviving so stock. So do you bury the compost? No, you just leave it to compost and above, you aerate above it? ground. Well, it's done in a way that the the um, straw is there. Maybe you might just put a, a bit of fencing wire over it. There are techniques and there are videos on YouTube showing it's, it's used a lot in North America, uh, for example, for roadkill and so on. It's definitely the preferred method if, if the circumstances are right and it's been validated in Australia, but it may not be appropriate in fire grounds. It may just be too hard because, as I say, there's no uh, other material okay, to compost so them with. What are the other options? You Burial, well, I guess? Burial is, is really the major option. Uh, you don't want to burn the residual carcass because you don't want to add more fire to what's already gone through. And if there's enough timber or, or bush to uh, light a fire under the remaining carcass, there would be a risk of the fire going off again. So that's usually out. So that leaves burial. Again, the uh, the deeper, the better. You want to keep that burial site away from watercourses 
places because at some point it will rain and so and against away from anywhere that might pollute water in the future and this is one of the vexed questions about deep burial of mass deep burial of livestock that if it's near um, major groundwater sources it can over time they can over time break down and potentially cause pollution of the groundwater but that is very much dependent on the area where the um, where the stock have have fallen and where the the burial can be can be done and in many Australian situations many properties there would be you know plenty of dry paddock at the moment where you could dig a hole and especially if there's equipment there you know obviously yeah I, I mean like with roadkill you know predators come in eagles and foxes and all sorts of other animals come in and scavenge the carcasses does that present any disease or health risks if if the, if that happens. Well, it could do, but I think the main issue there is that potentially you're sustaining um, predators that we don't want in the landscape. So you've got a, the the invasive animals, the the foxes, the dogs, the feral pigs, and the feral cats. Their numbers will have been re- reduced in the fire grounds, but they're pretty nimble, and so they are the ones that could come back quicker. So removing their sources of food is a very good thing, and the sooner the better. How what's sooner? How quickly do you <laughs> you think people should try and get all that done? Oh, I think it's as and when you can in this situation, Chris. I, I don't think you can prescribe it. You know, you you've only got to look at the scenes around Malakuta where people can't get back for sometimes for days or weeks. Um, but in those situations, there's probably not a lot of risk because the fire grounds are so blackened that probably nothing's coming back there. Um, when carcasses start to rot, there could be scavengers could come back, but many of the scavengers will have gone in the short term. So, Helen, you know, what advice would you give to um, graziers and farmers who are listening to this about how they can best tackle what to them must seem an almost insurmountable problem of of dead carcasses, animals with their feet badly burnt, um, skin burnt, you know. uh, What what advice would you be giving them about how to tackle this in the absence of, of experts which probably are going to be very stretched? Well, I think it's a question of looking after the the live animals, assessing which ones can survive, mustering the the resources, the food, water and shelter for those survivors and then putting down humanely the ones that can't be salvaged. Obviously, um, in many cases, veterinary opinion may be uh, a help if if it's available, uh, but um, farmers will be observing their stock all the time. And then in terms of the, uh, uh, the, the carcasses, it's a question of finding spots to bury the, the carcasses safely as and when you can, um, and uh, just be aware of um, keeping them away from watercourses and thinking about the location of that in terms of what will happen when eventually it does rain and if there are flooding rains and so on. So, again, it's a question of deep burial and then properly covering it over. The sooner that can be done within reason, obviously, the better. Mm. And pollution issues? You mentioned, you know, keeping them away from watercourses. Yes, well, you know, if you if you push them all down into a gully um, to all sit there in the gully, well, then that's just waiting for um, for the next rain to come through and then they could be carried down the 
down the river. So that's um, that's not acceptable at all. So I'm, I'm, you know, for, as Inspector General of Biosecurity, what would you imagine that the action plan now will be for recovery from all this for, for the farmers? And also for from the National Park's point of view, you know, what will their plans be to to kind of uh, prevent extinction and, and to actually keep the national parks also populated. Um, where do you, how do you think that will be managed now? Well, look, if we, if we look at the situation of livestock, we've had um, a, a long-standing drought and hotter and drier conditions. So the livestock numbers in Australia are down in many parts of the country and um, leading up to these fires, there's been a big sell-off. So... It's going to be a slow restocking uh, once the rain uh, once the rain comes, and so uh, farmers are going to have to consider their their options and you know case by case basis as to how they can afford it. Because obviously, once it does rain, prices of restocking animals will go through the roof. Uh, farmers have been trying to hold on to their breeding stock in heartbreaking conditions and some cases those breeding stock have been uh, have been burned after you know having been hand fed and so on so um, uh, we'll see a slow uh, rebuild in some areas uh, it'll hit the the dairying industry in East Gippsland very hard I should imagine is there a kind of a cleansing effect do you think for farmers long term when they look you know their farms are more or less cleansed, sterilised of, I guess, everything good and bad, but particularly the things they don't want um, in terms of perhaps weeds and, and uh, diseases and yeah. so on? Look, I think the, the issue, the one of the biggest issues for the medium to long term is invasive species, both animals and plants. So when, uh, if we take plants first, when people are um, bringing in fodder, for for drought affected livestock or fire affected livestock, uh, it's a, a move built out of desperation, and it's so much appreciated by the farmers. And those um, fodder drops may come from a long way away. There may be weed seeds there that won't manifest itself as any problem uh, until possibly years later. So the issue for weeds is being aware that in the longer term there would be a need for surveillance just to look for any unusual weeds. There may be short-term benefits in terms of removing weeds that were a problem before. And then the question is, well, with that reprieve, once it rains, how could, what sort of strategies could be used to keep those weeds under and stop them being a problem again? With invasive animals, where you've got these big widespread uh, burnouts um, as I said, the invasive animals may have um, may have outrun some fires, but they will be reduced. There are opportunities to apply strategies on an area-wide basis to further cull. There are special cat traps, for example, for feral cats. Maybe they can be placed around in, um, in the areas of the national parks where feral cats have been a big problem in the, in the past to pick up residual cats that may have uh, escaped the fire because um, that would be a great way to take out some of those problems. Similarly, feral pigs, you know, there are pig-specific traps with um, humane toxins in them that could be, could be 
used to take out residual populations of feral pigs and knock them down further so that they don't bounce back quickly because the characteristic of these invasive animals is that they will bounce back quickly as soon as there are foodstuffs available. So there is a little bit of an opportunity to try and take it forward and get a strategy of reducing the impact of feral animals in the longer term. And so in terms of um, looking forward about um, lessons that we might have learned from these fires um, uh, in terms of biosecurity and, and avoiding some of these massive losses, where do you think we could do things better in the future in terms of, of uh, the effects of these fires? We're going to have fires forever. But um, in terms of their effects on wildlife and on, on domestic animals? Well, just in regard to domestic animals, I think good farmers now have farm biosecurity plans in place and, and there's been a huge effort uh, through Animal Health Australia and Plant Health Australia to, to um, assist farmers to, to move in that direction. And so those farm biosecurity plans need to be revisited as a matter of urgency for the people who've got stock or who've still got their orchards standing or or whatever. And, you know, this is not confined to animals. It's also the um, significant horticultural losses particularly that uh, need to be looked at. And so the biosecurity plans need to be revisited and they need to be strengthened in terms of the... Um, uh, the prevention of bringing um, bringing new organisms from outside the fire affected areas and reinfecting these vulnerable populations that are left that are trying to get on their feet and that would apply in the same manner to wildlife and um, to national parks and indeed to plant life because there have started to be moves to uh, work with community groups like bushfire associations and so on to uh, get them thinking about sterilising their shoes and their um, and their clothes before and after they go bushwalking so that they're not transferring pathogens from or pests from one forest to another unwittingly, just as, you know, we, we uh, encourage everybody to have clean shoes when they come home if they've, from overseas, if they've been on a farm or in a, in a certain area. And so those efforts of personal action for biosecurity need to be continued and widened. That's a very important um, continuous area that becomes essentially a responsibility of everybody who's dealing in these areas. So are you confident that we've got the the system in place to manage this and that our biosecurity rests in this fire will be well managed? Well, the, the mantra is biosecurity is a shared responsibility and it can't be government, it can't just be the community, it can't just be the industries, the agricultural and livestock industries. It has to be everybody because in the end everybody can be a, a risk creator if they don't do the right thing. But the risks are many and various so people have to be, you know, the, the in, internal... Um, uh, management of biosecurity of, of goods coming in, goods and people and, and product coming in to the country is obviously the, the responsibility of the Commonwealth Government and the, um, uh, the responsibility, the formal responsibility for scheduled diseases management is, is with the, the states and territories. But in the end, it's in everybody's interest to apply good biosecurity and... It is, but I, you know, when everyone expects everyone to do it and there's no kind of responsible 
um, organisation. I mean, what about the Inspector General of Biosecurity's department? Is that organisation have the carriage of monitoring this and making sure no, it happens? No, because the Inspector General is is um, for the um, Commonwealth or for the Australian Government um, Department of Agriculture and it looks at how that department carries out its biosecurity responsibilities, which are confined to the periphery. They are confined to the incoming people and goods and and whether they are bringing biosecurity risks into Australia. That's the formal uh, requirement. So the states and territories are formally responsible for what's happening inside their boundaries under the constitution and there's no formal constitutional responsibility for coordination, but there are many, many uh, consultative and, and formal arrangements that have been developed that make this work. And so you see national emergency management uh, responsibilities uh, that are run through Animal Health Australia and Plant Health Australia, for example, which are companies which involve the Commonwealth Government, the states and territories and the relevant industry bodies. And um, so they formulate things uh, for, for those industries and that goes back to the industry participants who then have to understand. But if, but if the Prime Minister wanted to find out about how we're sitting with biosecurity with the fires, who's he going to call in his office to talk to about it? He's going to be calling in the Secretary of Agriculture in the first place and then... Um, and the Minister of Agriculture. Oh, the Minister of Agriculture, yes, who's got the staff and they have the liaison arrangements with the, with the states and territories. But it's, the states and territories are absolutely integral to the issues, so it has to be done really through through COAG with um, with the Prime Minister and the Premiers and the relevant ministers under them. That's that's the appropriate structure to manage these things. Well, Helen, thank you so much for coming in and uh, opening up this area of biosecurity. Uh, it sounds like there are some real positives here. There's we we could see a reduction in the feral animal population. We could see some sort of um, cleaning, if you like, of some ground. But of course, the tragedy of losing all those animals, particularly the wild animals, is uh, almost overwhelming. I, I think people are struggling to come to grips with that. Um, my hope is that there is going to be somewhere who a responsibility for making sure that we do take care of these biosecurity issues and uh, thank you for explaining how that's probably going to work. So I appreciate your time today, Helen. Thank you. What a heartbreaking job our animal welfare officers, volunteers and vets have after a catastrophic event like the recent fires. But clearly critical to the reputation of Australia as a food-safe, disease-free supplier of animal-based food and fibre to the world and also as an eco-tourist destination with unique marsupials and other wildlife, Dr Scott Orr has carefully taken us on an awful journey that none of us would ever want to travel on. And we can only say thank God for the volunteers who give up their time to both treat and dispose of affected animals after their terrible experience. Join me next time on Rebuilding Australia when I'll speak to Dr Neil Moss who has been tasked with helping dairy farmers rebuild their lives after the effects of the fires. If after listening to this episode, you would like to offer some of your help in our efforts to rebuild Australia, the greatest ongoing need amongst wildlife rescue groups at the moment is for new volunteers, 
And as so much habitat has been destroyed by the fires, they're also looking for people to offer up release sites on private land for rehabilitated wildlife. So contact the New South Wales groups that need volunteers, which include WIRES, Wildlife Rescue South Coast, Animal Rescue Collective, Four Australian Wildlife Needing Aid, also known as Fauna, and Sydney Wildlife. Visit their websites if you'd like to find out more. Rebuilding Australia, Our Animals and Land was presented by Chris Russell, produced by Jennifer Goggin, edited by Lindsay Green, with sound production by Matt Nikolic. Listener.